Viet Thanh Nguyen was born in Vietnam and raised in America and currently lives in Los Angeles. His novel, The Sympathizer, won the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and other awards. He is also the author of the nonfiction books Nothing Ever Dies and Race and Resistance. Apart from writing, Nguyen is also the Errol Arnold Professor of English and American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. He has been the recipient of fellowships from the Guggenheim and MacArthur Foundations and is also a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and the editor of The Displaced, Refugee Writers on Refugee Lives. For more information about Nguyen, you can access his website at www.vietnguyen.info. Now, let's welcome Viet Thanh Nguyen to the creative process. funny and moving passages in The Sympathizer, but one that struck me was uh, when he visits the house of the auteur, and uh, I don't have to describe to you, but um, he experiences um, how they see him and how he's not seen, yes. but it ends very powerfully, saying this is how we scream. Uh, I feel like that could be the subtitle of the novel. Okay. This is how we scream. I like that. Yeah. Um, yes. Why? Uh, and for me, it's very moving that you, you bring it first for humor. Can you describe how you, you got into that? I don't know which is the first uh, part of the book that you wrote. I wrote the book completely linearly, so oh, yes. from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And the, in the original outline for the novel, the, uh, the scene in the Philippines would not take place until right before he went to returned to Laos and Vietnam. But I, uh, as I started writing the novel, I felt that maybe I had to rearrange it and move it up earlier, um, just for various reasons of pacing. So when it's time to write that scene, to write all of those chapters, um, I took a break in order to do research. So I read everything that had been written about Francis Ford Coppola and Apocalypse Now. Yeah. I, mean, I, knew, I knew enough already so that I had the vague outline of what these chapters would look like. But reading, doing all that research gave me so much information, so much ammunition, uh, because there were things that happened on the set that you just could not make up. You know? So I, for example, I really had to confirm that Vietnamese refugees were used in the making of the movie. I, I, I suspected that might be the case, but I definitely found out that that was true, yes. for example. And in terms of writing the chapters, it was very organic uh, because I had a lot of anger in me about uh, these kinds of movies. And so your idea of a subtitle is pretty accurate because I wanted to scream and I had to find a way to sublimate that and turn it into something that was funny because having a, you know just being angry would not be enough. Um, it would be too tiring to read in a novel that was 400 pages of anger. And I've read books like that. Um, I've also read books that are 400 pages of humor. And I thought, that's not enough either. You have to have some combination of the two to get at the real gravity of the situation. And fortunately, Hollywood provides plenty of material for both anger and comedy. Um, and so there's a very you know obvious direct satire of the making of this kind of a movie but also it draws a lot on satires of hollywood in general yes. and for for a reader like me i don't i find sometimes it difficult to read a, a war narrative i'm afraid of violence i don't want to put your gun anything and this allowed me just to gradually experience it and face it but not immediately uh, ground war it frightens me I don't know if you went through other drafts where you um, you dealt with it directly as war without the filter of film. There's actually a chapter. Mm -hmm. I didn't cut very much from the novel, yes. but there's one chapter that I cut, or that my <laughs> or editor suggested that we cut, and, and yeah. we did. It's set in the Philippines, mm -hmm. and again, based on what really happened, mm -hmm. which is that the Philippine Air Force, who was being used to fly the American helicopters uh, is called away to fight an actual war um, against Muslim insurgents in the area. So this really happened. So there's a chapter that depicts all of that happening and depicts actual combat and people dying and all that. And it just, I guess, did not fit into the narrative. We didn't need it. But that was, I think, 
the only time in that moment where the real real war a real war comes up but then you get it later with yes. the invasion of or the counter invasion through Laos and mm -hmm. you get some of that with the fall of Saigon so hopefully yes, you weren't too disturbed by those passages. no but it, it's nice to the way you for me a reader yeah. like me I'm sorry that's yeah it's just nice I'm wondering and, and just uh, segue um, so I think I know a little bit about your life and you came to America yourself as you were growing up uh, it's, it's such a clear-cut turning point, you know? Did you think often of, of this other self that might have, you know, this divided self, what you might have lived? I certainly thought about it. I think everybody yeah. who's a refugee has thought about mm -hmm. or an immigrant. What would have happened if mm -hmm. we had not made this journey? Mm -hmm. Or what would have happened if we had not survived and mm -hmm. so on? And so uh, I think that was one of the reasons why I al I've always felt a, um, a psychic connection to mm -hmm. Vietnam, because I was yeah. born there. Mm -hmm. um, so that even as I grew up very Americanized, uh -huh. uh, I, s I felt that some part of me was Vietnamese, and mm -hmm. that this would mean, for example, keeping my name, mm -hmm. trying to remember the language, going back to Vietnam, being concerned with it as mm -hmm. a writer yeah. and as a scholar. So that other life that could have been, I think, has always been a haunting mm -hmm. of, of, of me by, by, uh, by Vietnam. Yeah. And what was the first story you wrote? You mean that eventually became published? or No, I mean, just how did you find your way to writing? Yeah. Well, the first story I ever wrote was when I was in the third grade, which would be about eight or nine years old, mm -hmm. something, something like that. And there was a, the library had a contest mm -hmm. to write books, for kids to write books. Mm -hmm. And I was, by that time already, even though I'd been in the United States only four or five years, mm -hmm. completely fluent in English, mm -hmm. immersed in the world of the library and of books, which was mm -hmm. really what, that was my second home. Mm -hmm. um, as a refugee child, it was very important for me. Uh, because my parents were never around, so I spent all my time with books. So I wrote a little story, I, I, and I drew it, and I and I bound it in a book form, mm -hmm. and it was called Lester the Cat. Oh. And it was a little romance between two cats, mm -hmm. and the library gave a little prize. I think that was the first inkling that I had that maybe I enjoyed writing a story. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the kinds of stories that would eventually make their way into the books you have now, that was probably college when I thought I want to write fiction about what it means to be Vietnamese. And that began the moment I got to college. You know, I, I, I'd written some stories in high school and so on, but when I got to college I thought very clearly I need to write stories about being Vietnamese American. And that was the beginning. Because you didn't, well there are, the, the publishing world doesn't allow many and you know how unbalanced it is I don't know it's 90% maybe Caucasian I'm not sure um, because you didn't see enough stories of that yeah and I knew that as a scholar from a scholarly point of view mm -hmm. I knew that because I was also writing about the, uh, Vietnamese Americans for my academic work even as a college student and I'd written um, and I think I, I'd read by the time I was a senior I'd read everything that was in English by Vietnamese Americans or by Vietnamese refugees or, had, that, it, or that had been translated into English and it wasn't very much. Mm. Um, so I knew distinctly that there was a place for stories about Vietnamese Americans uh, or even Vietnamese people in English. Uh, and so that was when it was very clear to me that I thought I'll become a writer who, who writes at least for his first book stories about Vietnamese refugees and Vietnamese Americans. Mm -hmm. I was 20 or 21. Mm -hmm. And then by the time um, it came around to writing The Sympathizer, mm -hmm. it was 20 years later, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but during that time period, a lot of other Vietnamese American writers had already published. And they had already written all these stories about Vietnamese Americans and Vietnamese mm -hmm. refugees. And that was actually very, on the one hand, it was very frustrating for me as a writer to see that happening because I wasn't getting my own book published. Yeah. But on the other hand, it was very liberating because when it came time to write The Sympathizer, I didn't need to write those, I did not need to write that Vietnamese American story anymore. It already came up. And so I thought, and I already written my own short story collection that had not yet been published. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna write a novel that is not like anything, or at least 
is not simply about the refugee or the immigrant experience. Mm. And I'm going to write a war novel that's going to take on the whole experience of the war, which until then has been mostly the domain of white men writing about Vietnam, at least in English. Are you also involved in some translation projects? Uh, not me directly, but yes. I, help, I help to sponsor some translation projects. Yes, that is the uh, Vietnamese Diasporic Network. Or yes, we have the yeah. Diasporic Vietnamese Artist Network. Sorry, yeah. And then Diacritics, our blog, has yeah. published some work in translation from French and Vietnamese and German, from uh, either from Vietnamese writers or dealing with the Vietnamese in these different countries. I think it's wonderful how you're embracing other voices. That's what I really feel in the book. It's Even though it's strongly given the narrator's voice, I just have this sense. I love the ambiguity of it's not just a narrow perspective. I love that. Um, and so um, I was wondering how you found that voice. He feels like an actor in some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I wonder if you could talk more uh, about the research uh, that went into finding his voice and allowing us to see him from inside and outside. Um, well, it's very, I mean, when I came up with the outline for the novel, I also came up with the sketch of who the protagonist, Iran to Hero, is going to be, and I knew that the novel would be told entirely in the first person from his point of view. And I constructed him, even before I started writing, in a very deliberate way. Like, he had to be French and Vietnamese. He had to be well-versed in American culture and also Vietnamese culture, because I wanted him to be somebody who uh, literally embodied that whole stereotype of the East-West conflict mm -hmm. and would be intelligent enough to comment about that and comment about the war and about politics. Um, so that meant he was also someone who knew a lot about communism and, and Marxist theory. So that was the general biography. Um, and then in terms of coming up with his voice, I knew that this was going to be a novel where I could finally, as a writer, let go. You know, in writing the short story collection, I think I'd been very careful. I'd been trying to learn how to be a writer, and I was worried about other people's opinions and whether I would get these stories published. And the stories were written in a very constrained or restrained way. And with the novel, I thought, I'm going to write this novel for me, not for anybody else. I don't care what anyone else thinks, and I'm going to let it all out. And that meant that the voice of the novel had to be very robust and very vigorous and had to say had to be able to say things that I always wanted to say and that I felt were not being said, especially by Vietnamese or Asian. Um, so it had to be angry. But I also was drawn to novels of war that were satirical and humorous. Um, and I wanted those elements in there as well. So I spent a summer trying to come up with the right opening for the novel, both in terms of the, of the setting, but also the, the, the language and the style. And when I came across the first line of the novel, I knew immediately that that was it. That was the voice of the character who would drive the entire narrative, and that was the rhythm of the prose that would be there too. Now, I didn't know that it would be a funny novel. I mean, I hoped it would be, but I, I'd never written anything funny in terms of fiction. But you, excuse me, have you always been funny? Because you're funny. I've never, no, I'm not funny. You are funny. I, I think I've learned how to be funny. I've learned how to be funny. But that also happened, I think that, um, you know, with most of my life, I've struggled with uh, different aspects of my personality. And so, for example, when I graduated from college, I thought, I'm, I can be an academic or I can be a writer. Mm. These are two very different sides of my personality. So I decided to be an academic because I was better at it. But that meant repressing a whole lot of me, including the part of me that was, that eventually became funny. At 21, I was not funny. I think I was sort of an, a jerk, you know? Oh. Like I was angry and cynical and I had, I, was, I had a lot of opinions. Uh, but it took a long time to turn that into satire and to, I think, be aware of myself and maybe part of the humor comes comes from being from not taking myself very seriously like I take my work very seriously but I don't, I don't take myself seriously and that meant that I could write a narrator who um, who I could treat very seriously but not seriously at the same time so he becomes an object of our 
of our humor, of the, of the humor as well. Yeah, well, I think audiences really appreciate that. Um, there's one thing, now, in Nothing Ever Dies, you describe um, the burial tradition. I, I didn't think I knew it. Could, could you talk a bit about the Vietnamese burial tradition? I've never seen it myself. I heard about it. Um, and I describe it at the end of the book about um, burying a body first, far away from the village, and then waiting. You're supposed to wait like 10 or 12 years to make sure, and then you dig it up, the rem remains, and you clean the wash them, and then you bury them at the family tomb, which is closer to home. Mm -hmm. So I'd heard from my own teachers in, in Vietnam that this was no longer really a middle-class practice or an urban yes. practice. Maybe it still happens in the countryside but this is more of a traditional practice than a contemporary practice now. But with my own grandfather, and my father's father, it did happen. And, uh, you know, I, when I, I, I visited my Gue, you know, where my dad was born, where my grandfather lived and died, and I visited his first tomb, which was far away, out in the middle of a field, and he'd only been dead then, less, seven or eight years maybe? And so they were going to unbury him soon. But so I, 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 I had always thought it would have been it would have been really interesting to see that myself. I wouldn't have wanted to, to do that myself, you know. But it would have been really. I thought. I, thought, I think it's a great symbol of cultural cultural regard for for death and ancestry. This idea that. And also for sanitary hygiene as, as well, uh, this ability to hold the dead with our own hands, and that's something obviously that people in Western or modernized cultures would never want to do. You know, we want to keep death at a distance. But in rural Vietnam, you didn't have that choice. And I found some kind of symbolism in that in regards to our attitudes towards memory as well. Do we want to keep it far away and distant or do we want to lay our hands on it and, and bring it close? Not so, not so that we're haunted by it, but so that we can give it a proper burial. I think that was the ultimate meaning of that final paragraph. How do we give a proper burial to the past? Um, we can obliterate it, we can, we can try to forget about it, we can put it far away from us, but that's not a proper burial. And so the proper burial of the past is part of the work that I wanted to do with these last three three books. I think so. I think what you've done so beautifully. Um, yes, because there's a there's a skill to forgetting too, you know, an art a proper way. But then there's the other one that doesn't want to see the face. And yeah. I think that's what you address that yeah. that's the way um, Hollywood uh, certain aspects of publishing industry too have told only one side of the story. Um, and in in your own family was um, was talking about memories something that they liked, they were comfortable with? Uh, yes and no. I think that I grew up with a certain number of stories about mm -hmm. Vietnam, from mostly from my mother, um, not so much from my father. I think whenever, if my father ever told me any kinds of stories about the past, it was very clearly to discipline me. You oh. know, like, um, not even about the past. I remember growing up in the 80s mm -hmm. and my father saying, you know, you should be happy that we're here in the United States because if we were still in Vietnam, you'd be Bodhi right now. You'd, you'd be off in Cambodia, you know, fighting the war that was happening at the time. Not that I understood any of this. My mother was much more likely to tell stories about the past just to tell stories um, because I think the stories that she told were always very painful ones about just the traumatic things that had happened to her being a refugee from the north to the south, uh, establishing her life in the south in the 1950s, and then the wartime period of the 60s and 70s where they had seen some bad things happen to them. Um, but they were always, I think, very selective in what they told me because it was never, never as if they told me their entire history. And when I would ask them to tell me stories, they would be, you know, either reluctant or they would select the stories they, they would, they would want to tell me. So I think I've only been the beneficiary of, of selective memory on the part of my parents. There's still some stories that you haven't. Oh, I'm sure. Because yeah. um, I thought that was interesting. Have you still not visited this where you were born? I mean, I know you said. No, I have not. Yeah, uh, I've been to it. No. Uh, but um, 
maybe late new or not? No, I think eventually I will have to, the final yeah. confrontation. You know, mm -hmm. I think um, I think I've uh, dealt with Vietnam yeah. uh, and given it the, almost given it the proper burial. Yes. But I think for me, given what I told you about my second connection to Vietnam, that there has to be that final step of going to find the toilet and seeing um, the house that we lived in. I'm not, I'm not even sure what, 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 the, what the, uh, the government has done with that house, but uh, uh, my, my, my adopted sister lives in, in Bimituit. Um, there's a lot of history and personal history for me to confront there. I was curious about what your sister might have thought of your books, uh, because there is some, I don't want to say, I think you addressed it sometimes, there's some bits, there's some misogyny or, um, I don't know, but what, just overall, what did she think? Well, I don't, I don't think she's read it. I mean, oh. it's not in Vietnam. I mean, she, my adopted sister oh, lives in friends. Vietnam. She yes. I don't think she, I mean, she, we're Facebook friends. Mm -hmm. So I know she does, she has some English, but, mm -hmm. you know, I don't think enough to read the book in English. Um, I think it'd be interesting when the book comes out in Vietnamese yes. because, you know, my, one of my Vietnamese publishers has been very persistent in asking me to go do book tours in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And I've been like, let me wait and see what the government reaction is before I go back. Mm -hmm. But if I ever were to do a book tour of Vietnam, it would probably also involve going to Bai Mitoit and, mm. and, and, and confronting that history, you know, and then obviously my sister is there too, mm. see what she thinks. Yeah. What was your first experience when you went back? To Vietnam? Yes. I think it was 2002, I went back for the first time as a tourist. Mm -hmm. um, by then I was already uh, older and had been away from for 27, 27 years. And Vietnam had already changed a lot. You know, yeah. My parents had gone back in the early 90s twice. Mm -hmm. And I think they went back when I was in school, so I couldn't go with them. Um, I went back as a tourist for two weeks, very deliberately as a tourist, because I knew from everything I heard that returning to Vietnam was a difficult experience mm -hmm. for Viet Thieu like Xun. And I didn't actually want to see any relatives. Because I thought it's going to be difficult enough to go back to Vietnam and then to see relatives on top of that. I just wanted to enjoy myself for the first time uh, and, and deal with the, the superficial difficulties of being a tourist in Vietnam. And then I, then I would go back later oh. for a more uh, intensive uh, engagement. So that's what happened. I went back for two weeks, had a great time doing the basic tourist visit. And then 2004, I went back for seven months and studied Vietnamese in, um, in Saigon and Hanoi. And that's when I went to visit um, my sister and my family, my, uh, my, uh, my, fa my, my parents' uh, village in the north. And so you, you write to them? You have a communication? Facebook. Oh. <laughs> Facebook friends with a few cousins and so on. But writing in Vietnamese is really hard for me. You know, mm -hmm. I, I get very anxious about whether I'm writing proper Vietnamese or not. I visited uh, Saigon, I called it Ho Chi Minh, but uh, I uh, went to the War Remnants Museum and I just started crying uncontrollably. I don't know if you had an experience like that. And uh, my guide, he looked at me and he said, but why are you crying? Don't you know our history? And of course I know the history, but is it, it, I don't know, sometimes something's come over you in a way. Um, did that happen to you? Yes. Um, when when you went, did you go when, to the new museum? That's one building, or to when it was like a bunch of small buildings. It's the new museum. Yeah. Yes. I, I went, well, two thousand two, the first time, mm -hmm. and it was the old museum, which mm -hmm. was um, a, a, just a cluster of small buildings. Mm -hmm. uh, none, none of them none of them taller taller than one story, mm -hmm. and uh, I didn't cry, but I was completely shocked. You know, I felt I felt I felt the experience very, very viscerally. I felt mm -hmm. sick. And I felt like this was, there was a, I felt, I felt all kinds of emotions that I didn't know how to process at the time. So for example, I didn't take any pictures of the exhibits in the museum. I just took pictures of the outside, uh, which was the courtyard with some airplanes and guns and all that. Um, but I didn't take pictures of the exhibits, which were the same as what you saw. Um, you know, pictures of dead people and Agent Orange victims and things like this. And at the time, there were still fetuses in bottles. Mm -hmm. I think by the time you went, maybe they wasn't there. Yeah, there was there some. Yeah, I okay. see. But I thought, this is a violation. You know, I was like, this is, these are dead people who, you know, terrible things have happened to them. And, 
it's already a violation to have their images recorded this way, and how can I take pictures of the pictures? Um, so it would take me a long time to process my relationship to death and memory and politics, because the museum has all of those things going on in it. And uh, so it was a nothing ever dies, you know, it would take me a long time to write the chapter that dealt with these kinds of things. But um, I would feel that again in Phnom Penh, in Cambodia, in several places when I visited the various kinds of genocide memorial uh, places there as well. And if anything, it's worse for me in, in Phnom Penh seeing uh, the Tula Slang Museum and the Chemnyak Killing Fields. And, uh, I remember returning from those places and just feeling physically exhausted and sick, even to a greater degree than in, and, and it was not my history, like you're saying, it was not your history in War Remnants Museum, it was not my history in Phnom Penh, but I could still feel the, the impact of those images and that those memories there. So you were prepared in when you you were prepared in Vietnam and not. I was prepared in both cases. Yes. I'd, I'd done the work, yes. you know. I knew I knew I knew what they were about, and I'd already seen many of these pictures and books already, yeah. you know. But still, I think there is something important about visiting a site, mm. a place that's crucial. Which is why visiting Vietnam is important. Like for me, going to places is important to try to absorb some of the haunting that's there, but also. There's the sheer physical experience of being in a place, feeling the heat, talking, speaking Vietnamese, meeting Vietnamese people, all of that makes, reawakens memories or, or makes images in the pictures take on a different dimension. Yeah. Um, so that was why it was important for me to, to go back to Vietnam and to spend a year altogether in Vietnam visiting these kinds of places for the purposes of uh, all, the, all the books, but most, most specifically, Nothing Ever Dies. But the physical experience of traveling through the country, encountering Vietnamese people, dealing with Vietnamese customs and language and weather, all that was crucial to the work of memory. My name is Kang Din, and I am an undergraduate senior at the University of Washington, pursuing a bachelor's degree in communications. I was born and raised in Vietnam and moved to the United States for school at the age of 16. As someone who grew up in the Vietnamese culture while going to a Western school for the majority of my life, the contrast between my own culture and that of America has always been a significant part of my identity. I was born into a family that had strong associations with the Vietnam War. My maternal grandpa worked for the United States, while my paternal grandfather worked for the communists. And so dialogues and stories in relation to the war also significantly shaped my perspectives. This allows me to strongly connect with Viet Thanh Nguyen's narrative, a Vietnamese-born American writer and scholar whose work emphasizes his identity, which is remarkably affected by the Vietnam War. Nguyen's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Sympathizer, was especially fascinating to me as it focuses on a story of a person whose identity lies in both sides of the war, which closely correlates with my own experience. It is the narration of a North Vietnamese mole in the South Vietnamese army, who is half Vietnamese, half French, and embeds himself in a community not of his own in exile in the United States. The novel navigates his dual identities, contradictions, complicated sense of self, and mixed loyalties. Nguyen talked a lot about finding his way back to Vietnam, his feelings when he first came back and when he went to war museums in the country, all of which create, for me, a feeling of nostalgia and appreciation but also resentment towards the bitter history that stole millions of lives, the impact of which still lingers generations later in today's world. Viet Thanh Nguyen, with his great talent and remarkable academic achievements, have brought honor and representation to the Vietnamese and Vietnamese-American community in the United States and around the globe. His Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Sympathizer, have brought a community that has always been invisible into the spotlight, creating and encouraging conversations and attention towards the community so that we are seen and heard. Viet Thanh Nguyen and his work inspire me to further openly embrace my cultural values, to recognize my identity as the basis of my own work, and to contribute to the reputation and representation of my people, whether it be in the United States, in Vietnam, or out there in the world. If you're just joining us, 
we're talking with Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist and professor Viet Thanh Nguyen. Because there are many different kinds, well, two basic kinds of ivory, your professor, academic, and which, which writing is more important to you, or? Well, I think that certainly fiction writing is the most important. It's, mm -hmm. it's the one that gives me the most pleasure and the most pain all at the mm -hmm. same time, and is the most important to me in terms of my, uh, uh, my feeling that I'm achieving some kind of catharsis through writing. Um, and that I'm reaching a certain kind of audience. Right? So the, the reach of, of my fiction is much greater than the reach of my academic work or nonfiction. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, I think I could not have become the fiction writer that I am without all the scholarly work that I did. So if there's any kind of sophistication to the refugees and the sympathizer, it's because of my work as a scholar of literature and then as a scholar of memory and war in Vietnam that has enabled me to think about many of the issues that those books deal with, and also to think about myself as a writer. You know, um, you, I think, I don't remember if you would, I don't remember if this question came up at the American Library, but it came up at the, the Shakespearean Company meeting that I did a week after, when someone asked me about, and this was actually a question by a Vietnamese-French scholar, Miriam Dow, and she asked me, so how do you feel that you know, you're being treated as a representative or as a spokesperson uh, of the Vietnamese people. And I could not have answered that question without all the scholar, scholarly work that I had done. Mm -hmm. Because of all the scholarly work that I did, I know exactly, I think, how my, my literature functions, my, my fiction functions, aesthetically, but also politically, and in terms of how it's received. Mm -hmm. Like, I think I know why it won the Pulitzer Prize. I think I know why people treat me as a spokesperson. And there are good and bad reasons why this takes place. Um, but because I know those reasons, then I can position myself in a certain way. So that's why I told her, I told the audience basically, well, I don't want to be the spokesperson, but I know that people are going to treat me this way because of the machinery of race and representation. And that means that I have to use that role and also undercut it at the same time. So there's no place where I go where I claim to be the spokesperson, but I say, you know, if people ask me to be the spokesperson, I'll say, well, I'll tell you some things, but I'll also tell you that I'm not the sp spokesperson at the same time. I can't be. No, you're not a nation. You can't, yeah. I think you quoted that. And yeah. I, 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 yeah. Yeah. But most people don't see that. I mean, most people will, will say very naive things, like in the New York Times book review, Viet is the voice for the voiceless. That's, that's an actual quotation. Yeah. Some writers, I think, would embrace that, you know, but I can't. I see what you mean, but at the same time, I think... I hate cliches, so that's it. I understand, but sometimes they're trying to bring it across in the newspaper article to keep it short. Yeah. And I think that you have, in, in some sense, with your other work, um, the um, Another War Memorial, I, I think that that can be seen as a voice for the voiceless. I think that's very beautiful. A collective voice, though, not a just collective. me. But all no, it's them. Yeah, yeah, all exactly. them, but my students. Yeah. But that was, that was partly the point of that. It was yeah. like, you know... There, there is a in its own small way that project is gesturing at the necessity for multiplicity yes. of voices to deal with how diverse our experiences have been. Yeah, but that's why I, I do hear it in the novel, even though it is a, you know, it's through his lens, but it's all the complications and the ambiguity and 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 at the same time, uh, you know, as he's making this confession, you don't know what to believe, and he's writing this. Can you talk about that a bit more? Well. I, I did not know that it was a confession when I wrote the novel, mm -hmm. when I began writing the novel. I knew it was a first-person narration, mm -hmm. and I knew that he was speaking to somebody. Mm -hmm. I didn't know who, um, but I thought, I'll just write it and I'll figure it out. And again, about two-thirds of the way through the novel, I realized that it was a confession in a re-education camp, and he has to end up in this re-education camp. Um, and that it had to be a confession under duress, because that's the only way that confessions are written, which was an important revelation for me in a number of different, for a number of different reasons. Uh, probably the most important is because it allowed me to understand what the final third of the novel would be about, which is that it had to be an ending that took place in the re-education camp under torture in his own head. So it could not be about something external, like a, a battle or something like that. Um, and then the second thing was that the confession is a literary form. 
even in the form that it takes in a re-education form, mm-hmm. called writing and rewriting and editing, and, and so it became a, a perfect fictional form to appropriate something that was an actual historical form. And then the last thing, I think, is that the confession has both religious and political connotation. Mm-hmm. And the novel is, is both about religion and politics. It's both about Catholicism and communism. And he had, he had left behind one system of belief, Catholicism, for another one, in communism. But of course his revelation, one of his revelations at the end, is that they've, they've, they're, they're, they're structurally similar. Even if they believe in different things, they still believe in the same authority, same kind of authority. And they're both premised on power. And he himself is a believer. He's mm. a believer in different things mm. by the end of the book. I felt that so much it's a political, but it really felt like he just wants to belong. Uh, what is your relationship to Catholicism now? I know your parents are... Well, I was raised a Catholic, went to Catholic school most of my life. My parents spent a lot of money on my education, and it failed completely in the sense that I have never believed in God. Like, I mean, like, if, if, you, if, if you think of faith as something that's reflexive, like, I, you know, like you believe naturally, I've never felt that. You know, I've agonized over it. Like, like is there a God or isn't there a God? Or why don't, why, why don't I feel a natural faith? But I've never sat in a church and thought that I was speaking to God or anything like that. But all that Catholic education rubbed off on me deeply in a cultural sense mm-hmm. because it gave me a legacy of Catholic culture to draw mm-hmm. from. So the book is saturated with Catholic symbol- symbols, for example, and Catholic stories. And it made me into someone who uh, feels perpetually guilty. Really? Yeah, I don't even, believe it. Yeah, no. <laughs> like, even if I don't believe in God, I should believe in God, or mm. you know, even if I enjoy doing these naughty things, I shouldn't do these naughty things. Um, and so that I could impart to my, to my narrator. Um, so the fact that the narrator is a, is a believer who's tortured by his own system of beliefs, mm. that's me. Okay, so like, I want to believe in something, but it's not God, you know. Um, but it's a, it's, an, it's, a, it's a lifelong quest to try to be able to make sense mm-hmm. out of what to believe in. Mm-hmm. And to understand that it's important to believe in something, you know. Um, so I believe, like, the Catholic Church can be good, except it hasn't been in many mm-hmm. cases, right. But it, 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 like, it, like all institutions, it, it corrupts itself. So the novel is about the corruption of revolutions, whether it's American, French, or Vietnamese, but it's also about the corruption of Catholicism, which was a revolution too. Um, So I would love to have these revolutions, all of them that I've been involved with, actually live up to their ideals. I would love to have Catholicism live up to its ideal, right? And if it did, then I'd be a Catholic. Uh, and communism, I'm going to say, yeah. communism is a beautiful ideal too, I think. Right, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So when, yeah. When, when, when it gets there, I'll be there, right? Yeah. But in the meantime, we're left with corrupted institutions. Uh, maybe we should all worship Google. Yeah. <laughs> That's happening too. Yeah. Um, so, but even, uh, does your relationship, I don't know what's supposed to work, but now you, you have a son, did it, having a child, and that came at the birth of your son is roughly coincides with the publication of The Sympathizer, am I right? Well, I finished the novel, I finished the first draft of the novel two days before he was born. So, yeah. and then finished the final draft on his third month. So yeah, it's changed me, you know, because um, I've never wanted to become a father. I never thought I'd be a father. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been a good experience because mm-hmm. I think it's taught me a lot about feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's anything, you know, that I think that I've tried to learn about myself over my life, it's about, it's about how to feel. Because I think that my way of coping with being a refugee and the emotional isolation that I underwent because of my parents were busy working all the time, uh, one, one of the ways that I coped was to repress so many of my feelings. Um, so becoming a father and becoming a writer were important for me in terms of understanding that I had to go back and constantly investigate my feelings. Like in order to understand who I am today, I felt that I had to go back and look at myself as a four-year-old uh, who was taken away from his parents as a refugee and understand that maybe there was a whole set of emotional 
issues for me that would mark me for the rest of my life. And likewise, you know, watching my son get older, I've been counting down the days until he turns four years and one month, because that was when the communist invasion hit my hometown in Banditua, a month away from now. So watching him grow up and seeing who he is makes me think about myself at that age and think about what would happen to him if all those things that happened to me happened. You know, I, I, you know he's, that gives me great empathy for him and more empathy for me at that age as I try to understand how that history uh, turned me into the person that I am. Do you feel in some ways you, you had a childhood but you didn't have the, 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 child, the idealized childhood that you think about? Yeah, but as I realized talking to many other Vietnamese refugees, none of us did. <laughs> yes, did exactly. you know? so, and mine wasn't even the worst by any yeah. measure. Um, so that's why I don't want to make too much of a big deal out of it. No, you know? no. It's like everybody's childhood is important to them and you know, of course mine was important to me for all the reasons that I talked about. But my parents at the same time worked really hard to give me to make sure I didn't need for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the crux of the problem, of course, is always when you're a refugee or an immigrant child, it's, a, it's the gap between needing and wanting mm-hmm. that you feel so intensely. And it's the irony of your parents working all the time to give you the needs mm-hmm. and then not being able to f- provide you with the emotional support mm-hmm. that you would crave that is uh, widespread, a, a widespread experience among many of us. You know, so. I don't, know, I, don't, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know how else to put it. It's like, it's, just, it's not that big of a deal. Mm. It's just that for, for, for each of us, our own childhood is a big deal. Yeah. But you found that emotional support, as you say, through your writing. So you were writing and reading, and, and also they had a sh- shop. Did you want to speak about that? I know you spoke about that in The, the Refugees as well. I mean, it, was, it was your stereotypical immigrant or refugee grocery store, mm-hmm. you know? Um, it was a place for community because it was one of the few Vietnamese grocery stores in San Jose. And so people would come there from all over the city to buy the things that reminded them of home and to speak Vietnamese and be around Vietnamese people. And it made a lot of money, uh, but it was also not a middle class store. You know, in other words, it was not a white store. Okay, So it was definitely marked with uh, our ethnicity and our alienation, if you want to call it that. And it was marked by by really hard work and and violence. You know that they were shot there, robbed there, um, and that the, all that work was completely tied in with our home life at home. You know, because my parents would go work twelve hours a day. They'd come home, they would cook a very quick dinner, which would be a bad dinner, and then we would go to work again because you you have to process all the checks and cash and everything else. And that was my job. Mm-hmm. You know, like at ten years old, I was the accountant at home. And uh, so that store was everything in our lives for like a decade. And that, that decade happened to be the most formative period of my life from 1978 to 1988. Mm-hmm. In 88, I left to go to college. I left San Jose and I thought, I'm never coming back. And, and it was a lot of it was around that store mm-hmm. and around just how difficult my parents' lives were and therefore how, how emotionally difficult my life was. Mm-hmm. And it took me, 20 years, 25 years, before I could go back to San Jose without feeling like I wanted to get out the moment I got into that city. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but it, there are other things that you're unconsciously absorbing. Besides the stories, you're picking up all these stories and thinking about as, a, as the accountant, as the editor, uh, or sorry, as a, there's some kind of toughness, there's some kind of rigor. Do you think you're absorbing even, this isn't completely unrelated to writing? Oh no, absolutely, it's like watching, my parents go through their lives. What I recognize is that um, I have great respect for my parents mm-hmm. because even if I don't believe in what they believe, like I don't believe in Catholicism, I don't believe in capitalism, and these are the two things they care about the most, they always did what they said they were going to do. They said, we believe in God, so we're going to go to church every week, and we're going to sacrifice ourselves, and you know, we believe in capitalism, so we're going to work ourselves to death. And they did that, and they never, ever gave up. So that I absorbed. Mm-hmm. So that even if I don't do what my parents did, like I, I work just as much as they do. Mm-hmm. No, no. I work 90% as much as they do, because I can still take a vacation. Mm-hmm. I feel guilty when I'm taking a vacation, but I can still take a vacation, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So my parents would like take a few days off out of the year. I'll take a couple of weeks off, mm. something like that. But otherwise, you know, that whole experience of the idea of constantly working, constantly striving, constantly struggling, and 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 feeling that sacrifice is simply a part of life, mm. and that anything worthwhile requires your sacrifice. That I saw my parents doing that in the store, and that I absorbed. So they're workaholics. I'm a workaholic too. It all comes from what I saw in that decade of that story. And is so as a workaholic, as you're talking about planning, but you're also talking about uh, feeling free at the same time, thriving sometimes. Uh, but do you ever like to just write like completely improvised? Like I'm just thinking about that's. Oh is yeah. it too free? <laughs> no, no. I mean, like I wrote the the refugees completely yeah. improvised, almost completely oh, improvised. Yeah. Like the. the like with with the refugees, it was mm, it was thought out in the sense that I had an Excel sheet where I <laughs> <That's improvised>. <laughs> no 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 no. But that no, was only, that was only in terms of like okay, what's this story is about yeah. a woman? Next story has to be about a man, and so on. But in writing each of the individual stories, I would start off with a line or an yeah. idea, and then I would improvise, and it was terrible. You know, it was like seventeen years of misery oh. doing that. So planning is better. So at least in the case of the sympathizer, planning is better, you know, because yeah. I wrote that thing in two years. Mm -hmm. And understanding the plot, or at least the outline mm -hmm. of a plot, and some of the basics allowed me to improvise. Like, so in the Philippine sequence, I mean, I knew roughly what it was going to be about, mm -hmm. but I didn't know what every page was. I didn't, I didn't have any jokes or anything. All that mm -hmm. was improvisational. Mm -hmm. So there's, I think there's a, a delicate balance between structure and, and improvisation that are important. Are there things that you wish people would ask you? No. You don't want no. to be asked anymore? <laughs> well, um, I know there are things I don't want to be asked. Okay. You know, but, <laughs> but in terms of like wanting people to ask me stuff, yep, par partly it's because I, I've lost track, but I think I've done over 200 interviews mm. in the last year and a half or something like that, two years. So I don't need to answer any more questions. I'm sorry. And, uh, no, <laughs> And um, and I'm afraid that if I say you know I want you know I want you to ask about my personal life or something. <laughs> no, you've you been know, asked. My childhood trauma. Or something. I don't want to talk about that. No, but I mean I think there are certain subjects that are really exhausted for me. You know, like um, like I'm now doing all these interviews for the Italian press, French press, Spanish press. They always ask about the war, Hollywood, Apocalypse Now. Um, mm -hmm. Is there any, anything of me and the character, things mm -hmm. like this? Your questions have gone well beyond some of those issues, but there's a core set of things that by now, you know? We didn't really talk part. about Apocalypse Now, I suppose. Well, we did, but um, your first experience of it. <laughs> now you told me you've spoken yeah. about it today. You can if you want. Oh God, you know, it's like, uh, it's, uh, you know, I saw it when I was 10 on the VCR. I think it was mm -hmm. like one of the very, probably the first movie I saw on the VCR. But one of the first, um, and you know, it was my first, probably first movie. It was the first. I'm pretty sure it was the first movie I saw about the Vietnam War, and uh, it was a traumatic movie to watch. You know, because I enjoyed watching war movies. I saw a whole bunch of them, uh, but it was very violent movie, and object for, object for the violence were the Vietnamese people. And so that was, I felt like I was being split in two. Should I identify with the American soldiers as I always did, or should I identify with the Vietnamese who were being silenced and killed and everything like that? And so that left a very deep emotional imprint on me, and, and an intellectual one too. Emotionally, I knew it was uh, imprinted on me because I remember in college having to talk about that movie and describing the scene where the Vietnamese people are being killed and literally shaking, you know, in anger. And I thought, this is a... Uh, uh, a sign that art is powerful because it, art can really literally traumatize you um, and that means that I could use art as well to address that trauma and to take revenge and I knew I have a conviction that stories are really important to who we are individually but also collectively and so stories are political you know the, the, the way that America collectively has told stories about the Vietnam War is intensely political by erasing us as Vietnamese people, stealing our story from us. And I needed to become a storyteller, not just to take revenge on Apocalypse Now, but really to transform that story in terms of how Vietnamese people are represented, how we represent ourselves, 
but also to make an intervention in American culture too. So I see myself as a Vietnamese writer, but also as an American writer, a Vietnamese American writer. All these things are happening at the same time. Mm. There's another film, um, Full Metal Jacket, um, and there's a terrible line, I don't know if I should repeat, but it's obviously critical, uh, where it said, um, I don't know, it's a colonel saying that inside of each one of those, Viet you know this line I'm talking about? It's one American of those dying it's to come out or something like that. It, yeah, it was a group, yeah. yeah and that's what you want to combat, this, mm -hmm. these portrayals of just a, a body without a face, yeah. without even a screen, and yeah. just circling yeah. back to that. Yeah, or the certitude that America is always right, mm. you know, that regardless of all the terrible things that we do, nevertheless, these people appreciate that, because yeah. they really want to be Americans. You know? It's okay if they're dead, they're free, right. yeah? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's another thing. It's, it's, it's very powerful that you bring up in um, Nothing Ever Dies uh, that you can yeah, destroy a country you know, for an ideal mm. and you see it continuing to happen. Yeah. Um, and I think your, your, your books you know, speak to all refugees, really, and, mm. and it's, it's really important. Uh, I want to, um, if we can, if you speak just briefly about when your thoughts for the future, uh, whether they what do you feel are the importance of humanities when you were talking about it a bit? Um, what do you, what message do you like to give to your students, messages to, to give your students, to your readers? It depends, you know, I think that in terms of the humanities and the arts in general, it is mm -hmm. what I just mentioned to mm -hmm. you, that they remain crucially important, mm -hmm. um, certainly for people who love humanities and the arts, right? But crucially important in terms of defining who we are as a people, as a culture, as a country. Um, that's true in any country you're talking about, any culture you're talking about. And that's why I, I always, you know, think that writers need to be committed writers. Not everybody needs to be committed, but we, we don't see enough committed writers in the United States, for example. And this is, a, this is an interview about the American from the American Writers Museum, right? Yes. Okay. So, you know, uh, the age of Donald Trump has, I think, made it very evident to writers and that stories matter, you know, and, and make America great again is a story. I like the story, but it's a very powerful story that a lot of people do like. And for me, my work has always been about contesting that story. Ever since I was a kid, I've seen this, this sign in a window near my parents' store, another American driven out of business by the Vietnamese. Mm. And I thought, that's a story. Mm -hmm. At 10, 10 or 12 or whatever, I knew that was a story. And it didn't include me in the But there's a direct connection between that story and Make America Great Again. So that's been my life project, is to say, no, we didn't drive you out of, <laughs> out of your own country. You know, There's a much more complicated story here about America, about Vietnam, about me, about my people. And that's American people and Vietnamese people that need to be told through the arts and humanities. Right? And uh, it's a crucial terrain which is why we keep fighting about it, whether we're Democrats or Republicans, conservatives or liberals. Uh, we know that culture is an important place where we define who we are. For me personally, in terms of like the courses that I teach, I teach a very large lecture course on the Vietnam War, and it was very important to me to teach this course because I couldn't have written, no written Nothing Ever Dies without it because I wanted Nothing Ever Dies to reach a larger audience than just academics to demonstrate that the humanities matter. And the way to do that was to tell stories. So Nothing Ever Dies is, is very much narratively driven. And that came about from constructing my lectures to tell a story to my students. Every day I told a story, the whole course told a story. And what that story was, I was trying to find out as I gave those lectures and as I wrote the book. And then ultimately, you know, I thought when I started off with that class, I thought I want to tell a story about the Vietnam War and how we remember it and how we need to remember it for all of its diverse diversity and all the different perspectives and people that are involved. By the time I finished, in the last course that I taught, and this is after I finished writing Nothing Ever Dies, I realized it's also a course about how we remember, how we forget, and how to forgive, you know, given the terrible things that we've done to other people and they've done to us, or just the terrible histories that we encounter. How can we remember, forget, and forgive? These are very difficult questions. This is what 
But these, these are questions that concern not just scholars and academics, but everybody. And my mm -hmm. students are everybody, you know, because most of them are not going to go on to academia. Okay. Most of them are not even humanities oh, people. Right. Uh -huh. you know, these are, they're, it's a general education course. They come from all over the university. And so humanities courses like this, we really need to grapple with the big questions and how we remember, how we forget, how we forgive. These are big questions. And I thought that I could get the students to engage with those questions through the stories, of course, told. And I think I was able to achieve that. Yeah, no, you no, definitely you are able to achieve that. And we'll be happy to share them because it's not just for the American Rice Museum, it's for the different universities. So this is wonderful. I'm very curious to know about your the, the second novel. Well, you know, he, the, at the end of The Sympathizer, he survives and he's mm -hmm. on a, uh, a boat out of the country. And it ends there. And I thought that even though I had not set out to write a sequel, I thought when I finished The Sympathizer that a sequel might be in order because the novel fits into a certain kind of genre of the novel of communist disillusionment. You know. And so he's disillusioned by the end. And typically, at least in the context of the United States, these novels of disillusionment end with the disillusioned communist embracing America or capitalism or the West. Yeah, right. And that was clearly not going to be the case mm -hmm. for me. Um, and so I thought, I'm interested in what happens when someone who's a revolutionary is disabused of his revolution, but is, has not yet given up on the idea of revolution. So what happens next? How does somebody rebuild himself? And you had raised the question of misogyny earlier, which I didn't really address. What happens when a misogynist realizes he's a misogynist? Because to me, these questions are actually completely interrelated, you know, because part of what I hope the novel demonstrated is that warfare and revolution are deeply um, masculinist and heterosexual uh, endeavors. Not, not completely, not, not women can't, are not participating in these things, but in terms of like many dominant narratives about warfare and revolution, they are masculine endeavors. And he's totally wrapped up in that, and he doesn't see that. I didn't see that. Uh, and so the second novel is about him rebuilding himself, but also confronting his own misogyny, set in Paris over the first half of the 1980s, uh, because I also want him to confront his French legacy, his French heritage, his father, French colonialism, uh, the whole problem of, of of post-colonialism in France. Here we see Vietnamese people and Algerians, for example, and yet they're treated very differently in the French imagination. The wars in those countries are treated differently in the French imagination. He's, the plot is going to hopefully try to bring all these things together. Um, so that's, that's what's going to happen. In America, we call it the Vietnam War. Yeah. It's called, I guess, the American War in Vietnam? It's or? called, yeah, the official term, I guess. And what term do you have to talk about that? Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I, uh, I say that in Nothing of Dies, I say that both the American War and the Vietnam War are in, uh, inadequate terms mm -hmm. because they're both born from particular kinds of ideological perspectives, mm -hmm. um, either the uh, American viewpoint or the victorious Vietnamese viewpoint. But either way, either of those terms is problematic because it reduces, they reduce the war to a Cold War conflict, binary conflict between the United States and Vietnam. And that was clearly not the case, you know, that this was a war that involved Laos and Cambodia, very obviously, but also drew in all these other countries. And this, this problem of naming the war in order to contain the meaning of the war is not unique to this particular war. You know, most wars have names that are very inadequate. And so I suggested maybe a proper way to name a war would be to name a war after how many people died in that war, like the war of three million dead, or the war of six million dead, or whatever. Mm -hmm. But we're never going to do that, because it's too gross. Yeah. You know, it's like it's, it, we need the euphemism of a name in order to disguise what actually happens, both in terms of how many people are dead, but also in terms of what the wars actually involved. And in the case of the, of the Vietnam War, the American War, it wasn't just about these two countries, it was about capitalism and communism and, and uh, global markets and all those other kinds of things that are just too complex to summarize. Mm. One name. Yes, we actually need books to fully understand all the nuances, books like yours. Okay, well, thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you so much.
This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Khan Din. Assignment editor is Sorella Lark. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, Traveling to Leading Universities, or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.